Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Alison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And today Robert has prepared a real treat for us. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we just upgraded the the whole studio here. We're, we're recording in some pretty high-tech digs. Yeah, you look pretty sweet in those headphones. Yeah, yeah, I feel kind of loud in them, but... Um, but uh, but this this brings to, brings us to the question: Do you ever worry about uh, things being upgraded to the point where you'll be replaced by a robot? Um, a little bit. I mean, sure. I'm an editor, so some of the job functionality I have could surely be performed could surely be performed by a robot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend I, I think a little on the, those lines. Like a lot of my job is like getting information, reassembling it, and throwing in a Dune joke. <laughs> you know, and you could conceivably program something to do to do just that. Yeah, but a robot is never going to have your creativity. Yeah, well, there's the, the, definitely the human factor. Now, one area where the robots have really made some inroads warfare. in scoring some jobs, yeah, warfare. And it's kind of like we talked in the uh, the robots uh, podcast uh, earlier. Is that you know we give a lot of crap jobs to robots. Indeed, we do. And uh, you know, you, the war is a pretty crap job. So. That's why we have uh, these UAVs flying around. All right, yeah. Well, today we're going to talk about two main UAVs going on, the mm-hmm. unmanned aerial vehicles, right? The Predator yep. and the Reaper. Do you want to kick it off with the Predator today? Yeah. The Predator's, uh, the Predator's a pretty awesome uh, piece of machinery. Um, they've been around for a number of years. It's the MQ-1 Predator. It's a medium-altitude, long-endurance unmanned aircraft system. Okay. Uh, and if you've seen pictures of it, I mean, it just looks like a sleek airplane that doesn't need any room for a human pilot because the pilot um, and crew are in a little uh, little uh, studio, if you will, um, on down the ground. on the ground. Yeah. And uh, this thing's uh, loaded up with a bunch of high-tech sens- uh, sensing equipment, you know, infrared, all that. And uh, it was, uh, you know, invented primarily to be used as a um, reconnaissance. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So the Predator's out there in use right now. Yeah, yeah, we've been using using it for for years, um, and uh, I think uh, currently we have uh, we've, we've created something like uh, uh, like over a hundred, I think, uh, uh, counting the different predators and uh, and then the op- the eventual offshoot, the Reaper, which we'll get to in a minute. So, what kind of weaponry are we talking about? It looks like they come equipped with two laser guided missiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two uh, two Hellfire missiles uh, they can carry, and. Uh, and th- this is kind of be like they're out on uh, you know on some sort of reconnaissance reconnaissance mission, and then uh, they encounter an enemy plane that they can fire those off. In fact, there's a there's a YouTube video from uh, just before the uh, second Iraq War, mm-hmm. where um, an Iraqi MiG encounters one of these predators. Right, I was and, interested in this. Yeah. I mean, would an unmanned aerial vehicle be able to engage? Uh, a la so, Top Gun. Yeah, sort of engage. <laughs> like it, it, you know, it did some, uh, some defensive maneuvers. It fired off those hellfires, but the MiG shot it down. And, uh, and at the time, like I, I saw like an old, um, um, you know, newsreel of this and they were like, finally the, the Iraqis, uh, you know, have encountered a plane they can outmaneuver and outgun, you know, which was, you know, I guess there's a lot of chest bumping at, you know, not chest bumping, chest thumping at that time, which. Or maybe chest bumping. Or maybe chest bumping. <laughs> it feels a little like, you know, since everything that's happened since then, it feels a little, little tacky. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but, yeah, that's an example of where, you know, the, the predator wasn't able to hang with a human pilot, and uh, and and 
for that reason, like dog fighting is definitely one of those areas that um, that humans have a good hold on. Those jobs aren't going to disappear anytime soon, except dog fighting has kind of disappeared, at least in our uh, our current military situation. The Predator comes equipped with some pretty cool stuff, like the weeper holes. Yeah, this was amazing. Um, you've seen uh, you've seen Iron Man, right? I have, yeah. Well, you know that scene where he goes up, uh, he's like shooting up into the air and he's all excited about it, and then he starts freezing up, covering yeah. with ice and then plummets? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, it's the same deal. Uh, you know, Except pre- without Robert Downey Jr. Right, yeah, with, <laughs> without uh, without him behind the, uh, the, the wheel, as it were. Um, yeah, and these are just... Um, uh, the edges of the wings are titanium, and they're dotted with uh, microscopic weeping holes. Mm-hmm. And these allow um, an ethylene glycol uh, solution to seep out uh, out of internal reservoirs and break down the ice it forms on the wings during flight. So you'd think you would have thought of that, you know, in being a weapons designer. Right. Not being a fictional one. Right, right, right. So uh, just to give you guys a scoop, it's not just one predator flying up typically. Um, you'll usually have a, a small army of four predators uh, with the sensors, and then you're going to have a ground control station that um, is where the pilots are sitting, and you're going to have sensor operators, and you also have a uh, satellite link communication suite. Yeah, there's like uh, there's like one pilot, two crew members operating stuff on the ground. There's a direct like line of sight link between mm-hmm. the two, and then there's a satellite uplink. So it's it's not just like sending out a robot to do a guy's job. It's like a it's like a system, you know, with mm-hmm. with plenty of guys still involved in the process. And the aircraft can stay up for roughly 24 hours. And what they'll do is they'll swap out one and they'll put another one up. So that they can have constant coverage. Yeah, it's like if like if they unveiled like some robot louder milks here. You know, it's like one would do a <laughs> you know eight hour shift, and then another one would take over right after that. You bet, you yeah. bet. And uh, the Reaper is uh, kind of like the, the younger, badder brother of the uh, Predator. And, yeah, and uh, the more heavily equipped one at that. It's heavier. The Predator can go like 140 miles per hour, and the um, the Reaper uh, can go 300. Yep. Um, while the Predator has just those two missiles, um, the Reaper can hold like 14 Hellfire missiles. It can carry, you know, carry a lot, a lot heavier armaments. So it's, uh, and it's, it's basically picking up and, and making an offensive weapon out of the, uh, the reconnaissance technology. Right. It also comes equipped with some laser ranger finders that can, you know, locate and transmit art images of the targets. Mm-hmm. And the Reaper can also carry two bombs, which is as many as uh, most standard fighter jets. Yeah. And the uh, the Reapers, of course, are, are currently in operation. They're out there doing their job in uh, the Middle East. Right. I think it began flying missions back in October 2007. So tell me a little bit about Noel Sharkey, who you got to interview for the Discovery News article. Oh, yeah. Yeah. N- Noel is a, a really cool dude. He is a professor of artificial intelligence and robotics at the University of Sheffield in uh-huh. the U.K., and he's also the co-founder of the International Committee for Robotics Arms Control. Okay, and he's just—he's really a guru on all things um, um, on robotics in general. But he's—he's he's really made it his mission to to get out there and get information out about the, the current state of robotic weaponry and and sort of and, you know, where we're headed in the future and making sure that we're heading in the right direction. So, I mean, he's—I think he's been on the Daily Show. You know, he—he's and he's one of these guys. He can just—he can talk for hours on the subject. Yeah, you said he gave some good quotes. Yeah, yeah, he—he he talked to me for like. Uh, Half an hour, maybe forty-five minutes, and it was all awesome. We could have kept going, but you know, wouldn't have any place to put it. Um, so Sharky was making the distinction between in-loop uh, systems, specifically man-in-the-loop systems, mm-hmm. right? 
and man on the loop systems. Yeah, this is really this is really cool. And apparently, these are these are industry terms for, for these. Um, but um, the systems that we were talking about just now, the Predator, the Reaper, mm-hmm. with uh, you know with a, a command system on the ground with guys working in it, that is a man in the loop system. All right, that means that. Someone controls the applications of lethal force, and uh, you know it's like other stuff will be will be automated, but uh, but there'll be certain key things that a person is definitely uh, taking care of. And likewise, it can operate on its own. It can be programmed, uh, Sharky says, to react to the GPS, so it can go about on its own. It can navigate itself, um, but a pilot is still going to step in and control the height. And yeah, and there's still there are guys you know there manning the thing um, on the ground. Right. So a man in the loop is really a hybrid between, you know, uh, an uh, so a man in the loop system is really a hybrid then, huh? Yeah. But the, the next step, and we're not there yet, but, but like the next step in the, the evolution of this would be a man on the loop. Okay. And, uh, in this, you'd have a swarm of planes. And then when we say swarm, don't think of like bees exactly. Swarm is like a robotics term mm-hmm. for, you know, a bunch of robots that are operating in chorus with one another. So in this system, there would be multiple planes in a you know in a full you know computerized system, but instead of having like one crew on the ground for each plane, there'd be like one crew for numerous planes. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's kind of like imagine like a really rowdy kid at the beach, right? And you'll have a parent like over his shoulder at all times, making sure that he's not like eating sand or you know, punching crabs or whatever, you know, bad stuff kids do on the beach. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with this scenario. <laughs> so so that's 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 man in the loop. Man on the loop is like you have a bunch of kids that are reasonably well behaved and somebody's just keeping an eye on them, you know. Right. You get a chance to sneak a peek at your summer reading, your trashy mm-hmm. novel, while the kids are swimming, you know, in the ocean and jumping the waves. But occasionally you step in, make sure they're right. close enough to the beach. So the next logical step in all this is just letting the kids go to the beach by themselves, right? And I the, suppose. And, well, and, you, are they going to have a party? Well, see, you're concerned. And that's that's the key. Because maybe the kids aren't ready to go to the beach by themselves. And likewise, neither is the technology. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, do we have the technology to send out robots on their own to wage war or even wage reconnaissance? Um, and uh, and should we, even if we do have that technology? I think you always need the red button. I think you always need the executive pilot who's going to be able to cancel the attack mm-hmm. at any moment. I think that's the predominant thinking on the matter. Yeah, so let's talk about the advantages of some of these unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. Um, you found a pretty good article on this from Christian Science Monitor writer Gregory M. Lamb. No relation. Yeah, he did a good job of running through the uh, advantages there. Right. So obviously one of the things is that we're going to be able to protect our own soldiers, our own human soldiers. We're not going to have to put them in uh, dangerous missions, you know, whether it's crawling through caves or uh, street to street urban combat. And ultimately, we may reduce casualties. Although I do think that there is still a place for, um, you know, infantrymen in, in, in combat. I don't, I don't see robots entirely replacing that. Do you? Not the current state of infantry, no. And that's what the really interesting part. If we were introducing robots into like the infantry of a hundred years ago, like back when you had, you know, clearly drawn lines, uh, you know, on the battlefield mm-hmm. and you had guys in uniform, that kind of thing. You had a much, you know, it was much clearer and, and far more distinct. And you could conceivably like send in a robot to do things like, all right, anybody in this uniform will be shot or anybody in this area will be carpet bombed. Um, 
but uh, but modern warfare, I mean, it's kind of the point where you just don't have as much, um, you know, black and white. Right. Um, it's heavily nuanced. Right. I mean, you may have an area like, all right, you, you can identify as like a kill box where, you know, there's, there's the enemy is dense enough in this area that you can just unleash full force on it. But aside from that, I mean, you, you, you know, you have, um, you know, you have street to street warfare and, and, you know, heavily populated areas. I mean, basically the whole situation in Iraq and Afghanistan is just not suitable for, uh, at least, you know, certainly on the ground for, uh, for robotic, uh, Warfare, and, uh, and according to some, the, the uh, neither is the uh, the aerial scene. Right. Well, so you could take this as an advantage or a disadvantage. Um, some see civilian casualties being reduced with robotic warfare, mm-hmm. uh, especially these unmanned aerial vehicles. But it all relies on human information or misinformation, as the case may be. Right. Right. And that also assumes that you could introduce sufficient ethical programming, according to uh, Gregory Lamb. Uh, yeah. There's a. There's a. Um, there was a project at uh, Georgia Tech, actually, that was uh, looking into that, an ethical governor for robots. Right. And th- this is a key area, um, something called the principle of distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and this is something the International Committee for Robotics Arms Control are, are, are big on talking about. Um, and, and this is this is an example that Sharkey uh, put put forth. All right. Imagine that you have um, in, in any war, you're going to have people that are immune to armed force. All right. You're going to have like, you know, wounded soldiers right. shouldn't be, you know, Executed in the street. Uh, people should be able to surrender. Right. Uh, health workers should be able to get through. Civilians should, you know, not be harmed. Clergymen. Clergymen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Etc. All these people. So you're going to have to have you're going to have a robot that's going to distinguish between all these people. I mean, that's pretty complicated. I mean, we have some some pretty high tech sensing equipment, but but nothing that really replicates, you know, the ability of uh, you know of a human to take all that data and, and make a judgment. Right, the ability to interpret our environment, right. definitely. Like, uh, well, anyway, back to Sharky's um, example. It's like, say you had a funeral procession, right? And if you, you had a robot that was designed to identify a funeral uh, procession and say, all right, I'm not going to attack those guys because that's, that's a funeral. Well, then you what would happen the next day, right? You'd have, um, you'd have enemy, um, you know, combatants, um, staging a funeral staging procession. Staging a funeral, yeah, and marching through the street. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, it's like robots are not in a position to make those kind of, of choices. Now, the people who are working on the ethical governor um, program, their argument was that, well, in some situations, you could, you could create a program. Like, not for, like, street-to-street, you know, house-to-house warfare kind of a situation where there's just too many factors. But if you had, say, like, if you had, a, say, a reconnaissance robot, and you had it designed to like respond to uh, to um, force, you know. You, then you could conceivably have it programmed to where it could uh, make the right decision. But but it's still very. This is a huge topic of discussion. Right, and it's not there, right? Yeah, though the technologies, yeah, not there yet. So another advantage of using a robot might be uh, that they act as a force multiplier. So um, that is that you could extend your manpower farther. You could have one soldier, one human fighter who was commanding a squad of robots that were working semi-autonomously. Okay, man on the loop. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay, so you could have a much smaller army that is augmented with uh, mechanical uh, uh, soldiers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then, of course, um, robots can make faster decisions than us slow humans. And that's an important advantage mm-hmm. on the modern battlefield where everything happens really fast yeah, really and it's fast. hard to process all that information and, you know, things like shock set in or there are injuries and, and a robot is just going to make that split second decision. Whether or not it's the right one is open for discussion, but mm-hmm. it can make that. It does have that split second capability. 
Yeah, and you know, to that point, they're not affected by emotion. They're not going to get angry or revengeful or hungry or fatigued or tired, any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and Sharky discussed that, and he said that uh, his, I think his words were, quote, and neither does my uh, refrigerator, but that doesn't mean I'm going to give it a weapon and tell it to go kill people. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Oh, along these lines, uh, two of the other big disadvantages are how easy robotic weaponry can conceivably make it make killing. You know, it's uh, if, if you're, you know, you're in a little studio or you know a little control room and you're navigating a robot, you know, on the other, you know, miles and miles away, you know, to uh, blow up an apartment or something. You're, you're, you know, th- th- we have that disconnect from the violence, you know, and what does that do to us? Uh, and similarly, if, if you if you were waging war, and you're sending out robot soldiers, robot soldiers that, you know, they get blown up, they crash, and and a large number of like the predators, for instance, have either been blown up by the enemy or they've crashed. Uh, we even had to shoot one down, I believe, um, and because uh, because we lost control with it, uh, and we had to had to uh, take it out. Okay. So if you're sending out these robot soldiers and and they're just, you know, they're crashing or they're blowing up or they're doing their job, whatever. You're not getting body bags coming up, right? You're not getting, uh, you know, images on the, on, on the, uh, the nightly news of, uh, of grieving mothers, et cetera. And so therefore it makes it easier politically to wage war because right. where's the outcry? You know, nobody's, you know, writing folk songs about the, the poor robots that are, uh, that are dying. Right. I think you could make the argument that presently we're disconnected from wars going on all around us. Um, you know, at least if you don't have a, uh, a husband or a wife or a brother or, you know, some family member serving in one of the wars, then, then I think you might be disconnected. Although at, at this point we've, we've been bombarded with so many images, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's on the news or reading a story in the newspaper. So I don't know if that's true anymore because the war has gone on so long, but at least initially at the outset, I think that, yeah. Currently, people can be pretty disconnected from a new war. Yes. What do you think? Well, I think so. I mean, this you know the same technology, of course, also allows us to see images, you know, immediately of what uh, you know what's happening on the battlefield or you know in the streets of Fallujah or, or what have you. So, um, so yeah, the same technology that can bring us closer can also uh, distance us somewhat. So, how effective are the Predator and the Reaper? Have you found any stats on what they're doing to the state of warfare, or you know how many targets they are taking uh, out? Well, they've they've been pretty pretty successful. I mean, that's why it's uh, such a growth industry. I mean, you have um, you know uh, it's one of the um, UAVs are one of the more sought after areas uh, in the U.S. military, mm-hmm. and um, uh, various other militaries around the world are uh, are involved in uh, in other UAV projects. And there's a lot of effort to get uh, ground based stuff. Uh, rolling, um, literally, um, at, at a, at a much, uh, at a much greater, greater pace too, because, uh, this, you know, it's lags significantly. I mean, you have, you know, like, you know, bomb disposal bots and those have been really useful, but you don't really see robotic, like, weaponized, um, ground vehicles yet. Um, none, not that, not any that are actually really working. There are, you know, a lot of them in, you know, test phases, et cetera. So just going back to, uh, the UAV specifically, I was reading, a article about drones in the Atlantic, and one of the military men interviewed was comparing uh, drones as a strategy that's a lot like attacking uh, a hive of bees with a single bee and taking out one bee at a time. Do you think that's an, do you think that's an apt analogy? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, I mean, the, the aim of it is to be, you know, like a strategic kind of warfare thing. Like, you know, this one that we call these uh, decapitation strikes, you know, because you're, uh, you're taking out supposedly the head of something, you know, you're 
be it a you know a military leader you know taking a nap on his rooftop or uh, you know or a, an arm, some sort of armament, etc. Cache of weapons. Yeah, I think that's the real take on is that we we have to to keep our eyes on where this technology is now and where it's going, and that's uh, that's what the International Committee for Robotics Armed Control is really into. Um, not as much saying we shouldn't have robotic, you know, soldiers or that we, you know, we should just, you know, we should use them all the time, but rather we should really think about what we're doing as we proceed and that we should proceed with a full knowledge of what the technology is and what it isn't. Um, because it's, uh, it, you know, and we've, uh, we've talked about this before. It's really easy to, uh, to trick yourself, um, into, uh, into thinking robots are doing things that they're not, like, like attributing them with, uh, with wisdom that they are not capable of or judgment, et cetera. Um, and just, and like I said, keeping in mind, like, how changing, changing the way we wage war changes the, the, uh, you know, changes how easy it is to, uh, partake in it. Right, right. So if you guys are curious about unmanned aerial vehicles, we have some pretty good, uh, articles at HowStuffWorks.com, no? Yeah, yeah, we have a really good one on uh, on the Predator uh, and a really good one on the Reaper, uh, and a number of articles about like the like future war and robot soldiers. Uh, so you can just drop any of that stuff into the search uh, bar, and uh, you'll get a load of cool stuff. And we've uh, covered uh, this uh, kind of thing on the blogs a lot too. Cool. What you got in front of you? Oh, I have some listener mail here. Um, Oscar. You, you remember Oscar? I right? do remember yeah. Oscar. He wrote us a rather exhaustive, uh, um, passionate, email. passionate. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I uh, read the whole thing. Um, he admitted, he even admitted though that he was a bit long-winded in it. Uh, but I'm just going to read a part of it. And he said, "Quote: Let's start by saying I found your podcast interesting, although in a different way from the other podcasts." And which podcast was he talking about? Uh, stuff from the science lab. Which podcast episode? Oh, um, he was talking about two. He was talking about um, our robots alive. Right. And uh, the one we did about, uh, will aliens destroy us? Right. Yeah. And he says, uh, while stuff you should know, tech stuff, and stuff you missed in history class deal mostly with facts, you guys tend to deal more with abstract issues where personal opinions it counts a lot. And that <laughs> always brings up great com- conversations, so thank you for that. Um, which, uh, you know, and then he went on to, to discuss his own thoughts about um, the nature of humanity um, and how that plays into our expectations of alien life and uh, and and also um, robotics. Um, so it was a really cool email. Thanks, Oscar. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts, Oscar. It's really great to hear from listeners. We we read every single one, and uh, we appreciate it more than you guys know. And uh, then I got a really cool one from this guy named Mark, and uh, and and this is awesome too because he's uh, he's a former sailor. So uh, excellent. So I always hit, love to hear Navy stories. Um, he says. I just started listening to your podcast, and it has skyrocketed one of my faves. All right. I had listened to your podcast about the virtues of venom, and it reminded me when I was in the Navy, I had a drink in Japan called Habusaki. We were officially warned about the drink from my chief. Habu is a Japanese cobra, which is added to sake, which is rice wine. The bottles had the whole snake coiled at the bottom of the bottle. It was explained to us that the venom shuts off the liver, and all the alcohol is sent into the bloodstream. Oh, Lord. Nothing is filtered out. I, of course, had to try it. As a seasoned sailor, I had developed a very high tolerance for alcohol, and after my first shot, I hadn't felt anything. I was extremely smooth. No, it was extremely smooth (laughs) and sweet, like a good sake usually is. After my second shot, the room got very warm, and I broke out into a sweat. I stopped drinking after that and made it back to the boat. Others did not have the same discretion and had a much harder time finding their way out from under the table. So um, he's referring, of course, to 
some of our discussions in that podcast about alcohol that has been infused with uh, with uh, typically snake venom. Right, the uh, virtues of venom podcast. Right. So that's a good one. And I'm really that interested in that. So I've really enjoyed hearing people, you know, tell us about their own experiences with crazy snake wines. So uh, Habusaki is not going to be on your happy hour cocktail list. No, but I, it's, I would love to have just a selection of it. You know, like you know, people have the little mini bars. Like, what if you had a mini bar? It would be that, most impressive. Yeah, that only had like venom liquor. You know. <laughs> Um, uh, and then he uh, also he also added that uh, he says uh, my uh, my senior year of high school I was part of the robotics team and we competed in the in the first competition this is the first robotics competition that we also did a big uh, uh, road trip podcast about I didn't actually build the robot part of the competition when I participated was a 3D animation short about the robot's movement capabilities I worked with two other guys to make an animation of a robot loading a cannon with a big rubber ball and shooting a flying car out of the sky that's awesome the flying car and cannon had nothing to do with anything but we spent most of our time animating the explosion which always got a lot of cheering uh, when it was played at the competition I also met my now current wife in the robotics team so this nerdy club did wonders for my social life as well keep up the good work so that's great he is a former sailor who drank snake wine and built he's built robots, robots so and his know, lovely wife man after our own heart yeah yeah well uh, like i said we, we do love hearing from you guys so whether you guys want to tell us about how you met your spouse how you build a robot or uh, what your thoughts are on unmanned aerial vehicles Send us a line at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out uh, the blogs. You can access those from the homepage. And uh, also check out the Stuff in the Science Lab Twitter and Facebook. Oh, yeah. Feeds. On Twitter, we're Lab Stuff. And uh, we've been updating that with uh, you know info on our latest articles, latest podcast topics, latest blog entries, and just what we're thinking. So be sure to stop on by and check it out. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.